Welcome back to Continuous Coach Podcast for Episode 3 of Season 2. This week, Mark and I are really excited to bring to you Gary Maxwell. Gary first started off in his professional career in media as a TV announcer and radio host, before moving on to being a branding expert, currently working with Tech Canada as a speaker and executive coach, as well as the host of the Leadership Standard. Gary also wrote Big Little Legends and Nuts, Bolts and a Few Loose Screws. Most importantly, Mark and I wanted to speak with Gare about how to be a better host, a better podcaster, and best of all, how to have a great conversation. We hope that you enjoyed our time with Gare, as we did very much. This is actually, uh, I'm looking forward to for some time. Um, said to Mark, like it's our chance to kind of you know, interview someone who also is an interviewer, and also a podcaster, and um a chance for us. I think hope they'll be our last episode that we do air. So we're really excited to have you on with us, Gare. Um, thank you so much for willing to be willing to share your time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, can't wait to dig in and uh, be a part of the continuous coach. I know you have a book to be released November 9th, um, and it's been said that writing a book is a great learning experience. What did you take from writing it? Well, that's a that's a great question right there, uh, Darcy. Uh, so the book is called uh, Big Little Legends. It's how everyday leaders build irresistible brands. And it's one of those things where I think a book, writing a book can be an incredible adventure. It, it can be a, its own uh, journey of exploration and discovery. And I know when I started the book, I had a concept in mind. But that concept really changed and evolved as as the more I dug into it and the more I wrote it. And here's what I mean. Big Little Legends is a metaphor. And the it's the metaphor for the small but mighty brands that punch way above their weight class. And the more I started to dig in and research, I found there were dozens literally across North America and and really in all parts of the world. Because when people think of the word brand, they automatically default to Apple, Starbucks, Disney, Coca-Cola. Think of the great brands, Lululemon, Harley Davidson. Okay, and I started thinking, well, wait, wait a second. Who's written the book about? Those small to medium-sized businesses, I call them the big little legends that have created this incredible appeal. Uh, So, for instance, in the province of Ontario, you go north on on the 400 and you go up past Barrie and past Aurelia, and there's one business with a long lineup of customers. And it's irresistible. And it's it's a business that sells an otherwise ordinary product. And even as I say this, many of your listeners, the vast majority are already picturing Weber's. Weber's on Highway 11, where you can stop for burgers, fries, and a shake. So I wanted to know, how did Weber's pull that off? How did they create, Darcy, this long lineup? So for me, the discovery through all 12 chapters of Big Little Legends was not just how did Weber's do it. Well, how did Dollar Shave Club do it? March 6th, 2012. How did Cafe Dumont do it in New Orleans? How did Pike Place Fish Market 
do it in Seattle. Because I've already had the firsthand experience of uh, a mom and pop business out of Fredericton, New Brunswick, that created their own big little legend. When I met Jim and Donna, their small business was doing just over a million a year in annual revenues. And that was in 2002. In 2006 is when we discovered that we could do something entirely differently. And without any strategic plan, without really knowing what we were doing, we changed such a vital component of the whole marketing strategy. And now that business employs over 38 people and does north of $50 million. So he's become Jim and Donna. uh, Jim Gilbert's Wheels and Deals is Canada's huggable car dealer. And they've become the giant on the East Coast, largest independent used car dealer in all four Atlantic Canadian provinces. It's one of the country's great small business success stories. It's the origin of Big Little Legends. And Darcy, I'm hoping I'm answering your question in the sense that when I started out writing the book, I, of course, I was, you know, I've been involved in the Jim Gilbert story for close to 20 years now, but I knew there were other stories out there. And through the writing, and the research, and you know yourself through coaching, the discipline of hard work, which no one seems to want to talk about a whole lot these days. What we did, fellas, is we pinpointed in every story in the book the exact day when everything changed and the lineups started to form. So when did you start your research with these? Did you start it, uh, I'm assuming, start and finish pre-pandemic, or were you still doing the research during the pandemic? That's a great question, Mark. Uh, what happened was the, the, the original manuscript was actually finished just as the pandemic started. I think I wrapped the original manuscript up in January, February, you know, of, of 2020. And then when the pandemic hit, it was, and you remember, you guys remember how how uncertain did we all feel back then? And I I just got hit with this uh, incredibly overwhelming sense of we cannot release this book now. Mark, why? Because we don't know what the world's going to look like. In other words, how can we release a book anchored to this concept of legends? And if we have a book that does not acknowledge that there was a global pandemic in 2020, it's already obsolete. It's already out of date. You know, when you write, when you use legends as your backdrop, you've got key references, the Civil War, the Depression, World War I, World War II, right? Vietnam. These are signposts of the human experience. So... What the extra year has done, Mark, to answer your question, it gave us more time to do more, shall we say, substantive and deeper research. And and I think that was one of the blessings that makes the book more interesting is that with that time, we were able to actually dig into and, and specifically pinpoint specific dates when things changed in all the stories we we share and and you know and 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 so it had a more shall we say a more cohesive theme to the book 
So in your opinion, then, and, and I'm, I'm asking this question thinking specifically about Dollar Shave Club, because I think it's the sure. one that you mentioned that I, I know the most about, right? And right. there are so many subscription type services that do monthly drop-offs out there, but Dollar Shave Club was one of the first ones in, and they've really uh, made themselves into a great brand. So in your opinion, through this research and through your years of, of study, what makes a good brand? What makes Dollar Shave Club a good brand or, or anybody a great brand? Okay, that's a gr- fantastic question. So if we can use just not brand, but also the origin of a legend, it all starts with a story. If there is no story, there is no brand, not one of any significance. See, it depends on what game you want to play. And so there can't be a legend without a story. There must be a story at the core, and it must rest on something truthful, not marketing bullshit. Sure. The world... Guys, the world is sick and tired of marketing bullshit. The world is tired of being lied to. We just went through a pandemic. We don't need to be positioned or targeted anymore, do we? No. No. But we do, as humans, rally around something and can relate to something that is real. And so Dollar Shave Club... Uh, If we use that one as an example, March 6, 2012 is the day they uploaded that famous video. So when you think about it, that video crashed the servers, (laughs) right? Like they had something, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was it was some incredible number. Like they had something like 12000 orders within 48 hours. All right. They were just running off their feet in the early months to try and stay up with the demand because the video, what happened was, Mark, the video lands on YouTube, but then it lands in your inbox, doesn't it? Or it lands on one of your social media feeds. And then what do you do with it? Share it if you like it. There. So you've got the customer now doing the marketing. This is the benefit strategically of creating a brand that is designed to be irresistible because now you've got to answer the question, why would anyone actually share this? And if anyone is out there dreaming in La La Land that anyone is going to share product service feature advantage benefit, that anyone is going to share your product price positioning promotion, like that's all nonsense. The world is run now on the phone. Nothing sells like emotion. And nothing creates emotion like video. So Dollar Shave Club was really, Mark and Darcy, way ahead of the curve. But when you study it, it probably took about eight months of developing the script before they went in and shot that thing. On a budget of $4,500, do you think Procter & Gamble, with all their millions and millions, saw that one coming? Absolutely not. So Dollar Shave Club captures the spirit of the big little legend, the one who's going to do something, quite frankly, that becomes larger than life. And the only way it becomes larger than life now is if real people, you, me, Darcy, because we all remember when that video came out, don't we? And how he, you know, right. And what do we do? See, what, what happens now Mark, it's no longer about the razor blades, is it? 
no, no we don't care about the rate. We can get yeah, yeah we, we can get razor blades anywhere. It's about the story it represents. And that's that's not just the challenge, that's the opportunity anyone has now. Create something that's more of a story so that other people can relate to it in a very human way. Kara, I want to make a statement and, and tell me if you think the statement is true or tell our listeners, I would, I would say. Um, leadership, coaching, and teaching all fall into the same bucket. Leadership, coaching, and teaching all fall into the same bucket. Okay, I'm going to answer this way. I think you're right. And you know why I think you're right, Darcy? School of Rock. School of Rock. What what did that character, Jack Black, do? Did he teach? And did he lead? What did you say? Coaching, teaching, and leadership? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the contrast. That's the story I see. It's two ways you can go here. You can go Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 and lecture, lecture, lecture. Or what did Jack Black do in the School of Rock? Did he teach? Yes. Did he involve the students? Everyone in the class was part of the band. He played to everyone's strengths. Did he not, Darcy? I, I think that's one of the greatest. I, I, a reason I bring it up, I had this conversation not too long ago with a friend of mine who was struggling to explain a concept around peer groups and, and how people learn best. And that's what we hit on. It was the contrast between School of Rock and the Charlie Brown teacher. And Jack Black in that movie, if you think back, was a leader because did he sometimes have to flaunt authority and take matters into his own hands? Or did he just follow all the rules? Think about it. Did he always have the best interests of his students at heart? Besides the leading, the teaching, and the coaching, he was also serving. Right? Because even back then, Jack Black knew. What was the name of that character? I'm, 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 I'm talking, hoping I can remember the name of the character. He was Mr. Schmeedley or something like that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> But he knew back then it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. So those of you who don't know, uh, Gare hosts a, a podcast of his own through Tech Canada. Um, and on your podcast, you ask each guest to define leadership. Can you define what a good leader is? That's a great question. It's easy. I'll tell you one thing, Darcy. It's far easier to ask that question. I'm. It's funny when people get asked that question and now you're asking me. Um, no one's ever asked me before, but I've been in leadership roles. And I think the simple answer is this. The leader, in my view, always has to be acting with the greater good in mind. Not, it, it, It's about others. It's always about the others. And it's always about a purpose greater than oneself. To me, that defines leadership. How are you going to serve a purpose greater than oneself and communicate that vision with others? And and I've had some experience with that, some in, in different parts uh, of my life and certainly, <coughs> excuse me, in, in um, and I learned a lot coaching minor hockey. 
years ago in my old life, uh, I spent about a dozen years inside those rinks back in the Moncton, New Brunswick area, coaching kids, you know, from the little, you know, mites and atoms into uh, Bantam age kids. And to me, the greater purpose was not about winning games. It was never about winning games. The greater purpose to me was always attendance and re-registration. Did the kids enjoy so much about the game and their whole hockey experience that they would show up to the rink and that they would re-register the following year? So I think, to your point, you've got to also understand what are the metrics that we're going to judge success by. Because I would always tell my parents, I don't want to have any talk about wins and losses. Because we can't control that. And and so, but what can we control? We can control the, the experience the children have and how they're going to fall in love with this great game. That's what we can control. So one of the things, for example, geez, you... You opened up a whole can of worms with this one, Darcy. But <laughs> but one of the things was I would I would have that meeting that some and I, that some coaches do at the start of the year, and I always knew the parents were my other team. So many coaches, I think, make a fatal flaw in kids' sports. They think the parents are separate and apart. No, they're footing the bill. Okay, they're footing the bill and they're providing the taxi service. They were Uber before Uber was invented. <laughs> okay, and, and so but so the. It's suicide as a coach to think they're not part of your team. They are your team. They're all on the team. You've got the kids, the athletes, but you've got the parents and their families. And so, but I would always tell the parents, very clear expectations, everyone's going to play, regardless of score situation. Does that make sense, though? Regardless of score situation, yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, we talk all the time as coaches about how, you know, sports are training for life. Right. It's, yes. it's, you know, very few players make the pros, you know, a little more, but still very few play at the at the junior, or the university level. Right. It's it's about yeah. it's about building tomorrow's, you know, big little legends. Right. 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 Mark, you're bringing me back right into the rink. So I would explain to the, the parents, you know, I got Mark who's damn good. In fact, Mark's the best player in the league and he happens to be in our team. But if we're down by a goal with three or three or four minutes to go. And it's Darcy's turn, and Darcy's the slug. You know that kid, the kid with no talent, right? Has has trouble. Just he's still finding his sea legs, right, Darcy? You know what I mean. And if we're down by a goal, well, who's going next? Darcy's going next. Why would I reward Mark, the superstar? With extra ice time for poor performance. If he's that good, he should have scored earlier. And why should I penalize? No, I'm serious. Why yeah. would I penalize Darcy? It's it's not his fault we're down by a goal. Right? And how there's no guarantee. How do I know that's not the shift? That Darcy, parked in front of the net, has the puck bounce off his shin pad for the tying goal. And the reason I'm passionate about this, fellas, I saw that happen. So I've seen it happen, and I've seen the impact it has on children. You know, when you have your players, I, I, had, a, I had it happen not too long ago, and i I got to be careful that I don't get emotional about this, but I had a player reach out 
jeez, uh, two months ago, <laughs> ironically, his name is Mark. And I can't believe I'm launching into uh, the Mark story. But Mark was a kid who was nine years old. Nine years old is pretty late to be taking up hockey and Mark can't skate, right? Would you agree with that? Especially in Canada. Even then, right? Mark can't skate, but his buddies are playing hockey. Mark wants to play hockey. I'm his first coach. And I taught him how to skate. And he, he got to be a... Not not a bad skater, but he turned into a like a really good goaltender, and he played at competitive levels, not house league. He eventually wound up playing at competitive levels, and and he turned into like a decent goaltender in his area on his high school team, and and so obviously you know that did a lot a lot for the kids' self confidence. Well, imagine the feeling you get, coach, and I love the name of your program, the Continuous Coach. Imagine the feeling you get when out of the blue, the kid you haven't heard from for more than 20 years, maybe 30 years, is FaceTiming you from Cambodia. (laughs) I can't make this up. He's FaceTiming from Cambodia, and part of what he's telling you is, is how much he appreciated those years. Back in Riverview, New Brunswick at the Byron Dobson Arena, and guess what he's doing now? He is the goaltending coach for the Cambodian National Roller Hockey Team. Like that's that just made your day as a coach, didn't it? That the love of the game has been carried on and the torch will be passed to some kids halfway around the world that you'll never meet. Yeah, I mean, Maya Angela has that great quote, right, where it's like people are never going to remember, you know, uh, what you did or they're just going to remember how you made them feel. Right. I just butchered the quote that she has. But that's that's what you're talking about, where you talk about as coaches or as leaders. We have that opportunity to make sure that every kid walks away knowing that that we treated them well and that we we did it the right way. Well, I, I have a uh, I have a great friend and I, I told him the other days, the older brother I never had. And I was back in my home province just a few days ago, and we were sitting down for coffee. And I told, and Alan, Alan was a, his name is Alan Power. Alan was a longtime scout in the Quebec League. He was at one time a general manager of the Moncton Wildcats. He was scouting with Chicago and Toronto, played at the University of Moncton. We did a TV show together. We did a sports television show together. And Al shared with me some, uh, to your point, Mark, he shared with me this stat, and I, I think he's right, that knowingly or not, our interaction statistically can impact up to 80,000 people. 80,000 people, because one person that's impacted triggers how many more positive responses. And you got to believe when you know that in some way, someone in Cambodia is sharing values to who knows how many other kids and and when when the dominoes start to fall and play out it's an endless chain for me coaching you know the purpose of coaching is helping others get better through human connection um when you're working with executives uh, in your work now do you focus on their purpose oh absolutely that's at the core of everything we do uh because 
most marketing, can I just say it? Like most marketing is so product focused and that's why it's so bad and that's why it's so ordinary. But the greatest brands were never built on their products alone. It, did the products have to be good? What do you think, fellas? Oh, for sure. For sure. That, that That's a no-brainer. No one's arguing that. But Nike stands for a lot more in our minds because they're, they built their brand around values. Values that we can all aspire to about initiative, about courage, about being able to improvise and being resourceful. That's the Nike brand. That's what the swoosh represents. You know, I don't think it's any accident that the Nike brand consistently, because I study these things, uh, guys, like brand valuation. The Nike brand consistently has a brand valuation more than double their top four competitors combined. And they've told the story in three short words, eight letters. You know, it's ubiquitous. You go around the world. Everyone. We did a live streaming event in Taiwan back around Christmas time. Guess what the whole audience knows Nike stands for in terms of three words? What are those three words? Just do it. Right. Okay. So do the same thing. And, and what's the first phrase that comes to mind when I say the word Reebok? Pumps. Like nothing you have to go back to pumps of what that was the 90s wasn't it that's mc hammer time wasn't that did, hammer time did reebok do pumps wasn't the pump nike too no no it was reebok but my point is this yeah. reebok has spent and and darcy i hope this answers the question that you asked originally which was reebok is just an example of another company that has spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on marketing to be known for nothing I can't find an audience anywhere in North America that knows what does Reebok represent because they've made it about products, not about values. When Nike released the Colin Kaepernick video and that story, remember that in 2018 after Kaepernick took a knee? Was Nike on the side of values or product? Whether you agree or not is irrelevant. Were they on about values or product? Where'd they go? Well, it's a tough question for me because I, they went values, right? That's the question you're answering. But the, there's another part of that of do they do they do that to take advantage of a situation that you know sure. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's and again, we can get into all kinds of debate over the values, but they landed on values as opposed to the cushion of the shoe and the all the yeah. other stuff that people don't care about. You see what I mean, Mark? I do. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So when 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 Darcy asks me the question, this is the challenge with CEOs and executive teams. You got to start thinking in terms of the values that you are all about, that you hold and you can carry to the world, even to the point where if someone disagrees, you honestly really don't give a rat's ass because this is who you are beyond your products and services. I just finished reading um, a shoe dog, Phil Knight's, you know, memoir about Nike. Right. And uh, the story is incredible, but I have to say the writing is equally as incredible. And just the way that um, the, the language was, that was used and the style was just, I, I mean, I haven't read anything that kind of drew me in the way that story did. Um, but I do want to ask you, you, so part of your role is coaching the coaches um, 
or are coaching leaders, right? And so when you work with executives and leaders across Canada, do you have a framework, a set framework in this process or is it case by case basis? Well, you, you've always got to read the personality. Can, I think we all kind of agree on that, right? And, and some people, as you know, need a little more encouragement. And quite frankly, some people need to be kicked a little bit and jolted out of their stupor. Is that a word? Stupor? <laughs> it's, it's, it's close. close it's enough. close, right? <laughs> so the, the coaching story I like to tell, and I always share this early on in a coaching engagement, I tell the story of a rookie coach who showed up on day one with his new team. Now, he had been a successful high school coach, and then he was a, a college coach, and he had succeeded. Now he's going to the pros. So picture a guy going to the pros, and he's got a job. His first NFL job is coaching the quarterbacks, okay? That's going to be his job. Well, the team he's joining are the San Francisco 49ers. He's on the staff of Bill Walsh. Now, just think about that for a second. Bill Walsh is what? Arguably one of the three or four greatest coaches of all time in the NFL. Certainly on the top five with Shula, Noel, Lombardi, Belichick. Okay. And Mike Holmgren is walking into day one as quarterbacks coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Well, who does he run into on day one? Guy named Joe Montana, right? Joe Montana has got almost as many rings as he does fingers at that time. Okay? And you know what Joe Montana told Mike Holmgren on day one? Can you imagine how overwhelmingly intimidating that might have been? Oh, for sure. Montana tells Mike Holmgren, he says, takes him aside, he says, look, he says, Mike, I know you're new. I know, but I also know Bill Walsh wouldn't have hired you if he didn't believe in you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to coach me hard. I want you to coach me hard. And I make it a point to tell anyone I get into a coaching relationship with, I will coach you hard. Because I will see where the talent is and how to get it out of you. But don't expect it to be easy. Please expect some frustration. And, and I, but I expect effort and no one gives up. And that's how it's going to work. Because I think, quite frankly, fellas, if I could speak candidly, okay, I think we've gone just a little too far the other way with this molly coddling attitude. And I have no use for it. None. I want, it's got to be respectful, yes. But don't expect bouquets and sunshine up your butt just because you put in an effort. Because that's not the business world. The business world is competitive, just like golf, just like football, just like lacrosse, hockey. Keep going, right, guys? We Are we here to compete or not? Like, are, are we or not? Because if it's not competing... Because, see, suddenly, see what happened, though, fellas? We left the Byron Dobson Arena and the world of eight- and nine-year-olds that were trying to still love the game into now we're competing for real. So if we're competing for real, we're, we're going to play for real and, and, and give it our best. 
Yeah, I think like I mean, you mentioned the Joe Montana story, but there's the stories of 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 Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and in in the media rooms, he's chewing out Tom first, and everyone else is looking around saying, if he's gonna chew out Tom, well, I I gotta step up too. And there's countless stories like that, right? But I think in today's world, especially uh, minor coaches, you know, coaches that are coaching kids that are 13 and under, you know, we we want to make it fun. But they forget that you can make it fun and still have the high expectations of you've got to do it this way. You've got to be on time. You've got to, you know, put in time outside of the rink. You've got to you got to do all the things that are going to make you excel as well as just being here and loving the game. Right. And I think that's a hard line. And I think the world's coming back to that. But we, we kind of got lost along that way. Right. So when you're working with a, an organization that's in the midst of that. What's the first thing that you tell them to do? How, how do they how do they address that with their employees and begin to curb that that change? Well, we're going through it with someone. It's funny you say that, Mark. We're going through it right now with someone, uh, a company. I won't reveal it. Obviously, this is confidential work we do, and we we obviously take that very seriously and respect sure. that. But I can I can walk you through the process. The first thing they will work on, which they're working on right now are their values, specifically what they stand against. Great brands, in our discipline, we've learned great brands are not built on what they stand for, but they're built on what they stand against. What are you going to plant the flag on and die with your boots on for? What's that? we got to know that first. So before we get into message, Way before we get into media, we get to understand what's the mountain of values here. And the first step to finding that is define what is by defining what you stand against. Because what's everyone for? If you look at company websites, everyone's for integrity and passion. Come on. What are they all for? Right. Yeah. 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 And we we aspire to provide uh, the highest level of integrity for all of our stakeholders, blah, 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 blah. It's mission statement crap. No one cares about that. No one believes it. So the first step is to figure out what do you stand against? You guys are from the Ottawa area, right? Uh, uh, yeah, now I'm from the States originally, and Darcy's uh, from here and still is here, yeah. Yeah, there's a... There is a radio station in Ottawa that I still use as an example of what do you stand against? Bieber free, Gaga free, and your no nickel back guarantee. They did the whole <laughs> non-negotiable live 88.5. Right away you knew what they're all about. What's Jack Daniels against? No celebrity endorsements. Think about that. How many rock stars do you see tipping back the Jack Daniels? Think about it. Jagger, Richards, right? Isn't Jack Daniels a bottle of Jack's, the, the drink no. du jour uh, uh, in the world of hard rock? Nikki Six, Motley Crue. Has any one of them been paid a nickel by Jack Daniels to pimp that up? Absolutely not. What do you stand against? This is Ferrari. What do they stand against? They don't flood the market. And by the way, you don't mess at all with the logo. So Darcy, if you run out and buy a Ferrari and you want to alter the logo and the paint scheme like Dead Mouse, that rap guy, you will be taken to court. 
because they are against anyone tampering with that stuff. I mean, I can I can give you tons of examples, but think of it like the Untouchables. Remember that movie with Kevin Costner and Sean Connery? Yeah. Yeah. What were they against? They could not be bought. This is where it starts. You've got to figure out what are we call them non-negotiables. You're going to plant the flag like the Marines on Mount Suribachi, the Battle of Iwo Jima, February 1945, and that's how it's going to go. And that's why Nike, when I saw Nike come out with that Kaepernick thing, having red shoe dog, and I've studied Nike personally. I've been on several occasions to Beaverton, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, where they come from. Like, that's Nike. And that's why they can pull that off. And that's why Reebok is not in the conversation as the greatest of that specific product service category. Just like you're talking passionately here, right? You know, like great leaders, great brands, they inspire people through passion, right? right? So, you know, what are two things that you would tell our listeners to do to to inspire others? You know, or or just what are two things that you tell businesses do to inspire others? I mean, you mentioned using video as a tool for that, but what are some other tools or things you ask them to uh, to do? Yeah, I think I think the tools right are often premature. I think too many people are shouting from rooftops without figuring out and clarifying first, what is their story? What is the unique original story you have to bring to the world? What is that? And so chapter 12 of the book is um, inspired in part by the legend of Bagger Vance. Are you guys familiar with that movie? It was a golf yeah, movie. Sure. Yeah. 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 Robert Redford produced the movie. The, the original novel was written by Stephen Pressfield. And I think, Mark, this is probably the most poignant uh, uh, phrase I can share. Because I, if I, you know, in terms of the spirit of the question. Sure. What the legend of Bagger Vance and what Pressfield wrote about, uh, and he wrote another terrific book called The War of Art, which I highly recommend to all the listeners. It's one of my top five all time. But. He uses golf as the metaphor for life and does it so elegantly. And he talks about the authentic swing. No two golfers have the same swing. Darcy and Mark have completely different golf swings. You got to find your swing. Now, in the world of brand building, what does that mean? You got to find your story. And the way Pressfield captured the quote and the phrase is the authentic swing is remembered. It's not learned. You already came into the world with it. You just got to find it and dig it out. And that's that's truer than true. That's what happened with Jim Gilbert, Canada's huggable car dealer. It sounds clever, but he is, he's a quiet kind of aw shucks kind of personality, but he's the son of an orphan. And so he's got this Santa Claus feeling about him. Hug, Canada's huggable car dealer, Mark, expressed an emotional truth that was already there long before I showed up. Jim was already exceedingly generous with his time and helping people in his community. Like I can remember us going to the airport on our first ever flight 
and he's bringing a dozen, and I'm not exaggerating, a dozen coffees to the airport. And you know what he's doing? He's handing them out to the people working the ticket counters or baggage or all the people, Mark, you know what I mean, doing the Joe jobs at the airport. And he's like, you know, you're showing up for a 6 a.m. flight and he's coming there 4.30 in the morning with a dozen coffees for everyone. But that was him before the huggable story. You know, he, him and his wife would do handmade birthday cards for all their customers. And they did that for years, handmade birthday cards off a desktop printer. Huggable was the poetic expression that captured the authentic swing that was already there. Does this sound like it's easy to do, Mark, to figure this out? Uh, I'm not saying it is. No, it's it's not easy. I mean, I think no. you talk about that. I think like the Vermont teddy bears, right? And And that's, you know, it's such a hard thing to do, right? Right. But once he stepped into it, guess what? That was his story to live. And that story is now going to continue into the second generation of Gilberts. OK. I mean, I mean, that's that's what I've seen over the years. You got to I, I have a trifecta. Discover, tell, live your story. That's the trifecta. Can you discover, tell, live? So if you look at it like a Venn diagram, Discover uh, three circles, discover, tell, live, and how they all, you know, come together in the middle, the sweet spot of that diagram. That's Nike. That's Ferrari. That's the huggable car dealer. It's they've all discovered, told and lived their own story. Dollar Shave Club. Michael Dubin. He did improv comedy for like eight years. He studied sketch comedy as a hobby. So when he showed up to do that video shoot at their warehouse, at that warehouse, not even their warehouse, guys, they borrowed the warehouse for the day just to do the video shoot. But he stepped into his own truth as well. Can you step into your own truth? Can you discover your authentic swing? So I hear the excitement in your voice, Gary, when you talk about you know brands and, and the work that you've done. Um, and you, you've been doing the work for some time. So I'm just curious, how do you stay motivated in, in this domain? Well, for, for me, it's quite easy. I, I think that's a great question, first of all, Darcy. But for me, it's easy because I am deep down uh, a history nerd. So I am constantly studying history and I get fascinated by different phases of human history for a while, little while ago it was the reformation i got i got <laughs> i geeked out on martin luther and what he went through to write the 95 thesis right now i'm reading the guns at last light by rick atkinson which i think is an incredibly detailed account in his uh, trilogy uh to for the liberation of europe in world war ii because every time i go back into history darcy guess what i discover Something that's still true to this day. Was there profiteering during COVID? Were people acting badly during COVID, especially early on in the pandemic and still to this day? Yes. Well, guess what? Just reading The Guns at Last Light by Rick Atkinson, and guess what I discover? When the Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, think about this. 
what the sacrifice was. 156,000 soldiers trying to liberate Hitler's fortress Europe. They get on shore and they start advancing across France towards the German border. There's another invasion which no one talks about at the south of France around the Marseille area and the French Riviera, and they're coming up north through France. And you've, can you imagine the nightmare in terms of supply and logistics of trying to keep over a million troops fed and clothed and here's what the crisis part that I'm at the bo- in the book now is what? It's, it's um, the issues at, at the ports. So whether it was Marseille at the south of France or Antwerp, 20 to 30 percent of the heavy woolen clothing that the troops needed for the winter campaign that was about to come, 20 to 30 percent is being stolen right off the docks. Can you imagine that? How, what does that tell us about human behavior today? Does it give us some insight? Can we learn from history and take it forward and understand? You know, they talk about now today, the world's divided, the world's divided. Well, guess what? It was divided during Vietnam, too. You, what, what part of America are you from, Mark? Uh, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half outside of Boston. Right. So if, you, if, if it's 1969... And you're 17, 18 years old. What are you being threatened with? You're going to get drafted. Do you want to go? Uh, no, no, no. Do you want to go? Do you want to go? Let me see. You're asking me to go halfway around the world to get my ass shot off in a war we can't win. And I'm going to be looked down upon for murdering innocent children. Is that the, is that what you're signing up for? And yet America was divided then. Because a lot of people thought you should go to prevent the spread of communism. How's that How's that different with what we're dealing with now? With some of the very divisive things. So I think that's, so I think to answer your question, Darcy, I hope I have that, that I constantly get re-energized, refocused, and inspired by what the great leaders in history did to somehow stay out of that mosh pit of division and find that clear path forward. There's always got to be a clear path forward. Always. It's the leader's job to find it. That, to me, is leadership. Find that clear path, go in that direction, knowing you've got the best interests of, of people and, and, the, and the communities you represent and impact around you. So, Gary, just a few more questions for you. We really appreciate you um, jumping on with us. Um, I know in your previous life you worked in broadcast media and um, you spent a lot of time doing interviews and I think it was 15,000 or more interviews. Do you have a favorite interview that you've done? Oh, there's one in particular. With, I so wish we had the videotape to this day. That <laughs> Some of that video is, all, you know, it's been lost forever. Uh, you asked that question, I know exactly. And I mentioned my friend Alan Power. We had this uh, weekly sports kind of interview talk show we did. I can tell you the answer right away. Gordy and Colleen Howe. We had time. Gordy and Colleen Howe were on a book tour. They came through the Moncton, New Brunswick area. We got to spend an entire afternoon with Mr. Hockey, Gordy Howe. And I remember over lunch, 
we're having this conversation with Gordy and Colleen, and I think it was Al who asked the question. And he, how many real friends do you have? Now think about this. This is Gordy Howe. How many real friends do you have? And Gordy looked at us, and we'll never forget it. He said, less than the fingers of one hand. Gordy Howe had hundreds of thousands of millions of admirers, hundreds of thousands of acquaintances, but real friends. So if you go through life and you've got five great friends that you could call at three o'clock in the morning, no matter what, I think that's I think that's a pretty good record of having that, if you know what I mean. Because Mr. Hockey himself, you know, he, he laid that out there and we went, hmm, that's a pretty powerful statement to make. I mean, I think what it speaks to, too, is it's, it's so difficult to make really deep, meaningful connections with people. And um, regardless of your you know, position in society, let's say, right. um, it, it remains to be really challenging. And so um, when you meet someone new, when you're working with someone new, um, is there idea or a framework or maybe I'm I'm trying to find the word here, but just a process and and a a thought that you have to make a a meaningful connection as quickly as you can with someone, you know, the first, first interaction is always so important, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I kind of subscribe to, um, I, I hope I live by it. It's that, find out what they're all about, find out what they're interested in, see where the common ground lies. Mm. You know, uh, I don't, I don't, but I'm not that Darcy. I'm not that guy that's deliberate in terms of a step-by-step cookie cutter framework and a process. I, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be respectful, but I'm going to be inquisitive and I'm going to be curious. As part of probably part of my nature, and before too long, oh, you find out that, you know, uh, Jim's into motorcycles and Terry's into golf, and right. And I think one of the things, the strengths I had as a reporter and a broadcast journalist is that you knew a little bit about an awful lot of things, mm. right? So you can at least meet someone on some sort of territory that you at least knew something about, right? So I may not like you're a lacrosse guy, right? I don't know lacrosse that well, but I know that Joe Newendike and Gary Roberts were great lacrosse players out of the Whitby area. I know that. So I can speak to that. And obviously lacrosse must have been beneficial to them. It kind of worked out for their careers. It worked out in some way. That's for sure. Um, so the question we always end with, Gare, is uh, we're on a pursuit to uh, try and become better coaches and, and be continuous learners. In our pursuit, who should we interview next? That's a fantastic question. I've got the ideal guy for you, and you're going to love this guy, and I will set you up with an email. I think he's one of the best leaders I've ever known for a long, long time. And the truth is we lost touch for many years and we reconnected and he can tell you the story. Okay. I'm not going to ruin his story, but he's out of Halifax and he's the owner of seven McDonald's franchises. 
All right. So he's got a real leadership role in making a whole operation run seven times over without him being there. Think about that. Think about the child. But Dave's uh, his name is Dave Murray, but he's a true heart and soul guy because he and I were working on a project recently. And and Dave, I, I noticed, geez, I'm having a hard time getting him on the on the phone. And I find out that it's only then that I find out uh, that he's sponsoring a rescue effort to get someone out of Afghanistan. He has sponsored a family out of Afghanistan for many years, but there's a family member that was stuck over there. And he's dealing with how to uh, create a situation where a mother uh, with children can somehow go through a war zone, avoid the Taliban and cross a border into into a safe haven. So, so I would highly recommend my friend Dave Murray, who I'll be very happy to uh, introduce to you. And I think your listeners will just so enjoy his perspective on leadership, coaching, and all the things that you're talking about here. That sounds like it would be a fantastic interview. And we appreciate that for sure. Yeah. So, uh, fellas, I don't know what else to say. Uh, it's been great. The continuous coach. I, I went into areas I didn't expect, but I think that's the mark of a of a great podcast, too, is uh, it's supposed to take you on a journey and, and and that everyone listening knows, hey, we we didn't have this carefully choreographed or anything like that. It was just uh, three guys uh, jamming some ideas out and sharing some thoughts. Well, and, uh, you know, I want to say thank you as well. It was uh, great stuff. You can definitely uh, see the passion, you know, and especially hear the passion in your voice. And uh, we'll make sure to link in the show notes uh, a link so everyone can get your book. And uh, and we wish you luck with that. If there's anything we can do to help, just let us know. Thanks so much, fellas, and uh, all the best. You've got a great podcast here. And anything I can do to help move it forward, uh, uh, I'd be happy to do so. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Okay, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, Darsh, that was a, a great conversation there. I think um, when we first started the podcast and we talked about getting people that weren't just lacrosse guys, at first, to me, it was like, yeah, let's get basketball coaches and let's get um, you know, football coaches and let's get uh, a Raynette coach and let's get coaches. And, you know, yeah, Gar worked with his kids and was a coach and all that. But, you know, there was a lot of value in getting somebody like Gar on the podcast who knows how to build things and knows how to market things and knows how to um, uh, lead companies and teach companies how to be leaders in order to get where they go. So there's lots of value in that podcast. I think coaches can take from it. I know there's a lot that I'll take from it. Um, But yeah, I don't know what you thought. Well, you know, he's launching his book, right? And I asked that question. The the book is a great uh, learning activity, so to speak, or um, you know, own personal growth. Um, but he's he's always experienced different brands and working with executives. Um, you know, and I think the one thing you know, you always can pull pieces from anywhere to your coaching, right? And and it really spoke to me when he talked about uh, you know, brand has to have a good product, of course. Um, and he mentioned a few, you know, Dollar Shave Club. But more than that, it has to sell a story. You're buying and selling a story um, as a consumer. And I think as coaches, you know, really we're, we're doing the same thing. Um, whenever we're coaching, we're talking to a parent or whatever it is, uh, you know, on the field, the floor, wherever you want to call it, 
we're selling a story. We're selling our own personal brand as coaches and who we are. And, you know, people are either buying into that or they're not. And that's the, it's the product and the brand all at the same time. <laughs> and it's us. But, you know, to be a good coach, you got to tell good stories. Um, you know, even sometimes in terms of adapting and, and providing life examples for kids. But um, that's just, you know, what you're presenting yourself as, right? And so people want to invest in you and, and be part of whatever program you're with. It's about being part of your story. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I'll be on the uh, coaching selection process this year with Nepean on the board and uh, for our competitive coaches. And, and I'll be working with uh, the house league coaches as well. But, you know, I loved when he said, you know, it's not what you're for, it's what you're against, right? And so to me, in lacrosse or in sports in general, everybody's for, youth sports are for fun first, and youth sports are for life lessons, right? But what are you against as a coach? Uh, against using um, cardio for punishment? Are you against um, yelling at kids when they're on the floor? Are you against, um, or, you know, yeah, I, Stop you're struggling yeah, for I'm, something, but yeah, talking about non-negotiables, right? Like, what are your non-negotiables? Yeah. And yeah. start from that, and then you can talk about, you know, what your values are that you should project. You know, we a lot of us have similar values that we've all can kind of raise to believe are, are rights and wrongs, right? Um, but when he works with executives, he asks them, "What are you against first? Um, and I love that thing you just said about, you know, uh, cardio as punishment. Um, because it just transitioned quickly into his uh, coaching background, which was some time ago, <laughs> as he said. So I'm not insulting him, I hope. Um, but, you know, we talked about for him, the goal was every year how many kids come back. Registration. Right. I'm coaching youth hockey. It's not about winning. It's about how many kids come back. Period. Um, and the other thing he said was, I don't want to penalize a weaker player for the position or situation that we're in. So, for example, he talked about me being a scrub and you being a stud. And uh, he said, you know, the stud comes off the ice and now there's a minute to go and the scrub's about to get on the on the ice. Um, I'm not going to penalize the scrub for the fact that the stud didn't score the goal and we're down by a goal. It's not his fault. I'm not going to sit him. He shouldn't be removed that opportunity to get better, to improve, to enjoy it. Um, and I think that was a good, you know, philosophy to, to, to think of and have in the back of your mind when working in youth sports yeah and i think there is a time in a kid's life when you know you have a power play or you have a man up or you have this team that works at your your last minute offense your last minute defense but you know where is that line and when should that begin and i know where that begins for me that begins somewhere around the, the high school age level um you know but if you start that at eight years old how is that eight-year-old kid ever going to learn to play in the last minute of the game if he never gets the opportunity? How is that eight-year-old, nine-year-old ever going to learn how to move the ball quickly on man up when he never has that opportunity or she never has that opportunity in a game, right? So those are huge things that I think guys like Gar bring to the coaching discussion because a lot of coaches don't see that. They see the wins and the losses, right? And so when you get a dad like Gar that can come in and coach, and he has the ability to just step back and say, yeah, this is about development. And yeah, but develop, development to me looks like this. And I think that's a huge value for every organization. And I'm, you know, I, I take from this conversation, I think I've always done this, but I take from it as a reminder to when I'm going through the process of helping select coaches, 
I'm not just looking for the best tactical coach. I'm not looking for just the best tactical coach. I'm also looking for the coach that that gets it and and um, is for the isn't necessarily for the same things I'm for, but is against the same things I'm against and, and wants to shape kids in that way. Right. Yeah, you're better to have a great coach as your head coach and the tactical coach as your assistant because the overall framework is going to be set by the head coach and if they know how to deal with the parents and with the kids and the planning and organization, um, you know, better, but they have the technical piece, you know, provided to them by someone else, then you're going to be in a good spot, right? Um, I think what he also says, you know, in those values is guideposts, right? And he mentioned guideposts of human history and he talked about some uh, international, you know, military conflicts, but um, talk about the pandemic too, right? And the pandemic has been a launching pad for change uh, in so many ways. <laughs> but I think in the coaching world, uh, a change in terms of education, right? I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I was getting emails and texts all the time, or I was looking at my social media, there was a new, you know, conference or a new webinar or something every day. And it was like this overload of information. But that we were all just like, well, we're starved for you know something, um, and I think that the pandemic has been a great launching pad for educational purposes uh, and the coaching community, um, you know, and we're a product of that. But um, I think it'll hopefully we believe that strongly, um, you know, will be a continuing legacy of the pandemic and a guidepost that we we see in the coaching world. Yeah, I remember the first one of those that I jumped on in the pandemic was early on. It was uh, done by Alberto Lacrosse and, and Paul Ray, and I just remember being, you know, it was it was cheap. It was like fifty bucks for the for the conference or whatever it was, and I, you know, I, I think um, we got six or seven coaches from the PN to join it, you know, and and that started a a thirst for knowledge from the coaches, and then that led into us doing our own little things with some of our coaches, and it's continued until this day. And I think that's, you know, every coach had an opportunity during the pandemic, and we've heard other coaches say this in season one. Every coach has had an opportunity to sit back and say, ah, I can't go outside or I can't do this, but we can all get better somewhere, right? And so I think the coaches that have have been able to um, further themselves over the last two years are going to be are going to be ahead of the game, right? It doesn't mean that coaches that haven't are 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 screwed or anything like that, but at least now for those coaches that didn't, there's tons of resources. There's podcasts like this, or there's Jamin Monroe's podcast, or there's the virtual summits that you can still just email him and get all that free information. It's all there. It's all still available to you. And if the pandemic wasn't there as that guidepost a lot of those resources wouldn't be there right now. So I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's turning that negative into a positive, right? I've quoted um, one of our favorite local coaches before, but I'll quote a different one. Um, you know, every challenge can be an opportunity. And I think that's uh, what you see here. Um, I just want to mention that one story you talked about, about Joe Montana and uh, Mike Holmgren, his first year coaching, was coaching Joe Montana, which I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I know both those names, right? But I didn't know that was the, the level he started at and the quarterback he had first. But, you know, Joe Montana pulls him aside, right? And we all know the success Joe Montana and says, I want you to coach me hard. And, um, you know, Garrett talked about setting high expectations for executives he works with. And the same for us. Like, you know, why should we set low expectations for our players, Right. We want them to get better as people and athletes and lacrosse players, and we shouldn't lower that bar just so they can meet it. We should always continue to push them to strive and be better. Um, and that was a, 
a big thing I took from from the podcast or sorry the episode as well with uh, Gar. Yeah, and I think um, I always have this internal struggle how to set up my at the at the minor levels how to set up my stations right i like to put four or five kids in a station get them lots of reps but are you setting them up are you teaching to the middle are you teaching to the the low kid are you going to put a strong group a weak group and a a beginner group together how are you going to do that and i i think long and hard every day about how i'm going to split them up and I, i never try to do the same each day i always try to mingle those in there a little bit but i I do, and I have started to focus on there's only 16 kids on the floor, right? You can teach to each kid and have high expectations for that kid. It doesn't mean that you know player A has the same expectation that player B has, but player B shouldn't have that, – that, that percentage up on the expectation of where they are as a player should remain the same, right? And it's a hard balance to find, um, but it's one that I think every coach should be thinking about. Um, and again, it goes back to – I know what you believe in, but tell me what you don't believe in, right? I don't believe in in sitting the bottom kids, right? I believe in 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 you know I believe in every kid should play, absolutely, but I don't believe that we should teach just to the top kid or just to the bottom kid. We should meet each kid where they where they are, right? So.